now I'm going to laugh. <laughs> Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And welcome back. Welcome back to The Fault in Our Stars and all the feelings that I have about it. So many feelings. So many feelings. Lots and lots of feelings. Sigh. But before we jump into The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, which is our book and film of the day, mm-hmm. we should do homework. We should do we should. our news section. Do you want to start today, Joe? I can start. Yes. I'm prepared. I'm totally ready. <laughs> You're always so proud when you've actually done your homework. <laughs> It's because it's a rarely happens. (laughs) Okay, so this week I decided to take up the Canadian mantle. I feel like you threw down a gauntlet back with Scott Pilgrim when you (laughs) kind of reiterated the fact. I think we've done a good job with our interview segments where we've been interviewing Canadian authors, but texts were still work in progress. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, in our defense, is not easy. There have not been a lot of YA books turned into films in Canada. No, it's true. So I decided to tackle an even smaller pool, I guess. So I decided to read an Indigenous graphic novel this week. Nice. I read a text called The Outside Circle. (gasps) I love it. Do you know this one? Yes, I do. By Patty Lubicon Benson? Yes, correct. So this text is a winner of Code's 2016 Burt Award for First Nation Inuit and Métis Literature. And it's a graphic novel about a young man named Pete. And he's wrapped up in gang violence in Alberta. I want to say Edmonton, but it might actually be Calgary. I think it's Edmonton, but it's been a while since I've read it. So he's in a gang, and the gang essentially is selling drugs, and he goes around and collects the money from the various dealers. And he has a mother who is a heroin addict, and then he has a younger brother who looks up to him. Pete winds up killing his mother's live-in boyfriend, who attacks him with a knife and scars him and leaves him facially disfigured. And Pete tries to claim that it was self-defense, but it doesn't work. And he goes to jail, and his younger brother is left to fend for himself, and the same with his mother. So the graphic novel, it's relatively brief. It charts his rehabilitation through the prison system, as well as a special program specifically made for Indigenous inmates to try to reconnect with their community, their sense of self, their identity as Indigenous people. And I didn't end up loving the story because I actually felt like it was just a touch facile in terms of the really idealistic way that Pete manages to reform his life. It takes place over a number of years, so in that way it is a little more believable, but it still felt like everything really aligns for him to get the best case scenario. But the author is a woman who has worked in Indigenous counseling for a number of years. She is Métis, and there's statistics in the book and there's figures that are based in real life and they're really shocking and they're really provocative in the way that they challenge you to confront your notions of who indigenous people are how horrendously they are represented in the prison industrial system and this is canada so these figures hit really close to home and Mm -hmm. i thought that in those capacities the book is really important but it's also it's just really affecting in that regard i found it to be a very didactic text i knew it was intending to teach me something and i found that sometimes the explicit nature of the teaching overtook the narrative mm-hmm. and the story takes a back seat to that which is why i think it's probably really useful in its intended audience like to be used within high schools yes i have a recommendation for something you might like a little bit more more might find a little bit more compelling in the same vein though yes so katharina vermette and scott b henderson are working on a series the first volume is out and i believe the second one is actually the second one is now out too okay i haven't read the second one i've only read the first one the series is called the pemmican wars and the first issue is called a girl called echo i'm just looking online and i'm seeing that the second issue is called red river resistance so i really like this series i like katharina vermette anyway she's a fantastic poet short story novelist this book is about a character named echo desjardins she's metis uh she's 13 years old she's been sorry separated from her mom she's in the foster system like the family she's been placed with is good and it's not sort of the typical 
story that we're used to hearing maybe ubiquitously about like abuse etc but she does experience racism and people just not understanding her and her culture but also she doesn't really feel deeply connected to herself and her culture Mm -hmm. and what happens is that she has the ability to i think vermette calls it slipstream but she has the ability to travel back in time that she sort of discovers about herself in the first volume and so she finds herself back in saskatchewan in 1812 witnessing like a bison hunt visiting a metis camp just having this experience of where her people have come from. Right, reconnecting to it. Yeah, it's this neat aspect where like time travel allows her to do this. And so she finds this ability to anchor to her community through this sort of magic realist kind of superpower. It's really cool. And Vermette is a... Without taking anything away from the purpose of The Outside Circle, I would say Vermette is a much more nuanced writer and Echo is much more fully realized as a character. So I think you'd really like it. Interesting. Okay. Thanks for the recommendation. No problem. And it's YA too. I would totally recommend that if people hear about Pemmican Wars and they like it, it would be a great title to recommend to your library. And the reason I say that is it's published as single issues, but you know, a single issue comic is usually like five bucks. And because it's an independently published Canadian single issue comic, the single mm. issues are like $14. Oh, wow. Yeah. price prohibitive. It is, right? In a really troubling way, I think. So it's one of the titles that I've been big on encouraging people to get into their library so that it can find its way into the hands of people who need to read it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Activism. Yeah, our library-based activism is the best kind of activism. Obviously. And if people take away nothing except the fact that they need to support their local library from this podcast, <laughs> I will die a happy man. It's so true. Yeah, we're big, we're big library proponents. Mm-hmm. So I have my regular homework, but I also have a very brief piece of old news (laughs) that I only just heard about. And it's actually in the same theme of what we're talking about here. I don't know if you're familiar with Sherry Dimeline's YA novel, The Marrow Thieves. I've not heard of it. Oh my God, you would love it so much because it's speculative fiction. Um, It's dystopian future. I love. It's indigenous. Hey, I'm like really interested. Tell me more. You will love it. So it came out, I think, in 2017. It won the Governor General's Award for Young People's Literature. It won a Kirkus Prize. It was actually on Canada Reads last year, and it was the subject of a very interesting... Uh, Are we putting interesting expectation (laughs) marks here? Yeah, Canada Reads last year was really... I found it really troubling. The book that won, Forgiveness is not a bad book. It's a lovely book. Um, And it's about family coming to terms with their experiences in the Japanese internment in World War II. And it very much is about forgiveness, finding space for forgiveness. And some of the other books were much more challenging to the nation state than that. They don't come to resolution or forgiveness about things like residential schooling. It's maybe just a little more provocative and therefore less of a... (laughs) Less of a crowd pleaser. Yeah. So I'm going to read you the little CBC clip about the book plot. So the novel is set in the near future where Earth has been ravaged by climate change and a new iteration of residential schools has sprung up. Um, Frenchie, the main character, is a highly resourceful Indigenous teenager on the run from school recruiters and he joins up with a group of Indigenous people on a northward journey. So one of the side effects of the pollution that has caused like the rivers to basically be poisoned is that people have lost the capacity to dream. Mm. White people have lost the capacity to dream. Settlers actually, I should say more more specifically, have lost the capacity to dream. Indigenous people with connection to the land still have the capacity to dream. Interesting. And okay. so you have this whole thing in the book where the history starts out, a bunch of New Agers get really interested in like various Indigenous cultures and start trying to like invite themselves to powwow mm. or to ceremony. And, and then they get shut out when it becomes clear that what they're just trying to do is use these various communities to their own ends. And so settler culture doesn't about face reopens residential schooling with the intention of harvesting bone marrow the idea being that that's where our dreams are stored in the marrow of our bones hence Mm. the marrow thieves 
Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just found out that back in May, it was optioned for television. <gasps> Yay! And it was optioned for television by the people who produced Blade Runner 2049. Oh. Apparently. Okay. That's big money. Those yeah. are big name people. Seriously. I thought you were going to say little dollars at the CBC. <laughs> Apparently, it's a Vancouver production company who, who produced Blade Runner 2049. At least were involved in the production of Blade Runner 2049. So, yeah, it's very exciting. I could totally see that working as a TV yeah. show just from that brief description you provided. Yeah, absolutely. It would work really well as what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, when you define a series when it doesn't like go on and on forever, like a oh, a limited, limited series. Yes, I think it would work really well as that. Anyway, so that was my little bit of news. And you know what? I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to save the book I was going to tell folks about for next day because I've already talked a bunch and we're not even into our show yet. So my news is that everybody should go read The Pemmican Wars and go read Marrow Thieves in anticipation of it being optioned for film or television. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So our main text for the day is John Green's The Fault in Our Stars and its corresponding film which is from 2014, directed by Josh Boone. Yes, and I don't think we can overstate how popular this novel was in YA circles. So it was first published in January of 2012, and the film came out in 2014, which pretty quick turnaround, hey? Like, I'm not wrong, right? That's a quick turnaround? That is a pretty quick turnaround, unless they had some kind of idea of how popular the book would be, which I gathered yeah. from reading some things about the way that it was received initially. I imagine that they probably optioned it as a film before it was even published. Oh, interesting. Okay. In fact, I was looking up some background research. The Fault in Our Stars was the best selling ebook of 2014. Yeah. Like across Not the board. YA, Not like YA. Ebook. Ebook. Period. Tot like the best selling book in digital format in twenty fourteen. So it was a juggernaut. Like John Green has been a popular writer and most of his books have been, you know, they've gotten Kirkus stars or they've been, you know, recognized by the YA community, but I would say The Fault in Our Stars is the book that made him a YA superstar. Which is interesting because I didn't realize it was his sixth novel. I thought yeah. that this was second or third. Like I thought he had success right out of the gate. But I gathered that this is the one that really, I mean, I think he had done well with other ones, but mm -hmm. this one is the one, right? Yes. So John Green and his brother Hank have this internet fandom community called the Nerd Fighters. And... Okay. Nerdfighters are like, they're huge. It's a huge fandom. And it emerged out of Harry Potter fandom. I'm not going to do the whole fandom history, but I do, like, it, that's why I teach this book in my fandom class. Because what's interesting about it is I think one of the things that really drove sales was pre orders from uh, the millions of nerdfighters around the world. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. when I was doing my research, it said that there was a mistake where 1,500 copies were shipped before the release mm -hmm. date, and apparently it was a big deal. And part of me was like, okay, obviously you don't want your book to go public before it's intended to go public. But at the same time, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Like it came out maybe three weeks before it was intended to, but yeah. it sounds almost like... I mean, I'm not saying there's some kind of malicious conspiracy at work <laughs> or anything, but it sounds like it's the kind of happy accident where you can actually drum up quite a bit of free press. And if yeah. you already have an activated fan culture at your disposal, hello sales. Yeah. And he had already sold like 150. He'd had made this deal like he would sign, hand sign up to 150,000 like pre-orders. He sold all the pre-orders. So he had to like hand sign 150,000. <laughs> that's interesting. I've gathered that that's a big deal in that's YA. That's a lot of books. Sorry, not the number, the, the signing. Oh, the signing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I noticed that Isaacs, the guy who wrote Warm Bodies. Yes. He has been doing a big spiel about that on Twitter with the release of his final chapter in the Warm Body saga, where yeah. he was like, I signed 20,000 copies by hand, and they're now going out to people. And it's interesting because I've noticed that the big name authors, like when John Green did Turtles All the Way Down, which was the book that followed Fault in Our Stars, there's all these pictures of him signing like the literal books in the Fault in Our Stars. By the time Turtles All the Way Down came out, they're doing like book plates. He signs all the book plates and somebody sticks the book plates in manually. But like they seem to be streamlining the process because yeah, it is certainly something that YA fans want. They want the signed pre-order and the pre-order usually comes with like stuff the way video game pre-orders do you know like stuffies and buttons and stickers and stuff yeah the marketing and the distribution angle is all 
new to me. Like I'm not familiar at all with how it's done in the world of books. So it's fascinating to see how it definitely mirrors the way that it's done with films. But yeah, I think more specifically, you're right. It's video games that they're probably taking cues from. Yeah, I definitely think so. Well, and it's very very much overlap in the fandoms, right? That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So I guess I should tell folks. So what is this book about? (laughs) (laughs) So The Fault in Our Stars is the story of Hazel Grace Lancaster. She's 16 years old. She's living with terminal cancer. It's absolutely certain that this is sort of the end of her story will end with her cancer although she's had a longer life than expected due to like something she calls the miracle a drug that is keeping her from progressing more I guess her disease was is thyroid cancer but it's metastasized to her lungs and that's really her issue like her lungs she always says her lungs suck at being lungs she finds breathing really difficult she uses oxygen all the time she's forced into going to a support group because her parents are worried that she's depressed her mom in particular is worried that she's depressed and because she was pulled out of school when it seemed like she was going to die and then she went and got her GED on her own and she's just kind of taking college classes so she doesn't really have a community she doesn't really have friends so she gets forced into going to this support group where she meets Augustus Waters and Gus is an ex-basketball player he had osteosarcoma which resulted in the amputation of his leg and they begin this star-crossed love story hence the title the fault in our stars which comes from it's a sort of bastardization of a line from julius caesar where cassius tells brutus that the fault is not in our stars the fault is with us and the title turns that around to say no in this case these kids didn't do anything wrong (laughs) they're just fated to fated to die but also fated to love yes so i mean that's the basic plot the the real sort of emotional climax surrounds this idea that hazel is fascinated by a book called An Imperial Affliction by an author named Peter Van Houten. Both fictional. Both fictional, yes. And the book is about a young woman who has cancer. And one of the things that is compelling to Hazel Grace about the book is that it ends in the middle of a sentence. You know, ostensibly the main character, Anna, has died, but we never, she never finds out anything else because the book just ends in the middle of a sentence. And one of the things that Hazel Grace is obsessed with is the idea of knowing what's going to happen to people after. She's an only child. She worries about what will happen to her parents who have been her full-time cancer caregivers once she passes. And so this obsession with what's going to happen after really motivates her love of this book, but also ultimately her desire to communicate with the author. Augustus, in this sort of <laughs> like wonderful act of kindness and also I think act of of his love for her and his desire to be with her he bone her her, yeah that too he gives up his wish or I guess shares his make-a-wish wish with her and takes her to Amsterdam to meet Peter Van Houten who turns out to be a complete but the trip is not a wash total dick but the trip is not a wash because they make out in Anne Frank house um and then anyway the twist in the plot is that you start the novel assuming that Hazel Grace will die, but... Surprise, it turns out Gus is! Surprise, Gus is the one who dies. And as he gets progressively sicker, we have sort of some meditations on life and death and what it means to live a good life. There's a lot of that in the book mm-hmm. when it, your life is so truncated. And Gus dies before Hazel. And so the novel leaves us with... Definitely, there's no like miracle cure for Hazel, but she's still alive at the end of the novel. Yeah, I found I almost forgot by the end of the book that she was terminal because there isn't any kind of cue at the end to say, you know, oh, and she was starting to get weaker or something. It's Mm -hmm. just very much Gus passes and she has to live without him and Mm -hmm. find a way to be satisfied with the time that she has left. But it's interesting that there isn't a pin pulled on her grenade. No, which is the metaphor she uses for herself. But the book ends in an almost happy way, as happy as it can be, knowing that your main character will still die and her lover has already passed. So here's an interesting thing. When you talk about Shakespeare, oftentimes the sort of framing of Shakespeare is that It's a comedy because it ends with a marriage, and it's a tragedy if it ends with a death, right? Right. And what we have in this book is 
obviously it ends with the death of Augustus Waters, but the way the book is written at the end, she finds a eulogy that Gus had written for her because the one thing she wanted was for him to give her eulogy. And so he has written this something of a eulogy for her and she finds it and reads it. And at the end of the eulogy, he says that you don't have a choice in life about whether or not you get hurt, but you have some say in who hurts you. And he says, I like my choices. I hope she likes hers. And she says, I do, Gus, I do. And that's the last line of the book. And obviously that language is evocative of a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've always found that an interesting way that Green is twisting together the tropes of tragedy and comedy. We lose Gus, but we have something of a happy ending, a surprisingly content ending with that last scene. Yeah, it's true. I mean, in many ways, their relationship, as much as they themselves like to talk about being outside of the frame of cancer tropes and also sort of young love tropes, the book really does adhere pretty strictly to the kinds of conventions that you would find in both, Mm -hmm. which I would argue is actually the reason why it is ultimately so popular, because Mm -hmm. it's saying it's not doing (laughs) that thing that you don't want it to do, but then it's slyly giving it to you in a way that is palatable, that people respond to. And I think that comes from the self-assured and self-consciousness of Hazel Grace's narration. She's got this ongoing thing, as Joe's alluding to, through the book where she talks about the tropes of the cancer kid genre. And she says, you know, you expect that he's going to hold his sense of humor to the end. One of the things that's, I think, really lovely in the book is the way pain is represented, both emotional and physical pain. The book doesn't shy away from those manifestations. But she says, you know, Gus is going to keep his humor to the end. He doesn't keep his humor to the end, but we have her sort of sardonic take on the world that gives us that sort of strength and humor that we do expect from the genre. So you're right. It's constantly kind of telling us, I'm not going to do this thing, and then doing it in a way that we like. (laughs) I think ultimately that readers like, because she is such a self-conscious narrator. I feel like this is the moment where we should talk about the fact that I think you like this book quite a bit more than I do. Yeah, I think so. And I'm wondering if, and this is me projecting onto you, (laughs) is one of the reasons that you respond to this particular text, the fact that Hazel Grace and Gus are both extremely eloquent and they're they're quite wise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one could suggest they're even deep. (laughs) Yeah, the way that they speak, the way that they think, the way that they act To me, it was almost reminiscent of Dawson's Creek and some of the work of Kevin Williamson. I was absolutely going to say that I was definitely raised on an expectation of YA that comes out of the Dawson's Creek era. That feeling that you have as a teenager that you get it and no one else does and you see the world more clearly than anyone else and why doesn't anybody just listen to you made manifest, right? Which is exactly Mm -hmm. what's happening here. I think, you know... Gus and Hazel have been through a tremendous amount. And I think that if they didn't have, if they weren't written with a certain amount of emotional maturity, that would ring hollow. But one of the things that I like about the book, and one of the ways I think that it's an interesting departure, perhaps from YA, is that it is meditating on some pretty big questions, right? Like, yes, one of the things that goes through the text is that Gus wants to live a life that matters. And the way he defines that is very stereotypically masculine, right? Mm-hmm. Like He's very much the action hero wannabe. Yes. And like you make your worth by sacrificing yourself for a greater good. And it's all wrapped up in notions of heroism and masculinity. And one of the reasons why I like Hazel Grace as a narrator is because she's constantly undoing that or trying to undo that in him, like trying to show him that a life that is lived without harm is perhaps more valuable than Mm -hmm. a life that is lived seeking heroism. And one of the lessons that he learns that we find out in the eulogy is that he finds out that he is sick when she is in the ICU and he goes to visit her and he has this moment where he's, he describes himself as being selfless enough to hope that she dies before she has to find out that he is also dying. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he immediately 
reframes that and says that he wants enough time for her to fall in love with him. And he talks about that as him leaving a scar, right? That this scar that he has left on her, the way we leave scars as legacies in terms of like business and land and like all the things that we do as like human beings. And also because the book is obsessed with feeling pain. Yes, it really is. <laughs> it really is. There's this It's a line, bit of pain porn. I'm not It is a little lie. bit of pain porn. No, it is because there's this notion, right, that carries through from a, an imperial affliction, pain demands to be felt, right? Yeah. And I think that is one of the ways that it subverts some of our expectations about sick lit as a genre is that sick lit often, especially in, the y, in YA, shies away from visceral depictions of pain. And Green does not shy away from visceral depictions of pain, emotional or physical. Yeah, he's not afraid to get messy. I'll give him credit for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I will say that one of the things that I struggle with, I recognize that Gus does come around at the end. But I find that even in the eulogy and even in some of his final encounters, he's insufferably patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And I find it oppressive and I... I almost come to resent Hazel Grace for falling in love with him because he's just such a semi-douchey, smooth-talker kind of poser. (laughs) You're right. You're right. You know, like when we contrast this with the film, I think it's more effective because the role is cast by an actor that Mm -hmm. can really play off that. He's got like a Han Solo effect to him. He does. But I found that when it was just the book, and partially because we're still getting it filtered through Hazel Grace, so yes, she's still unpacking, and yes, she's still deconstructing these false notions of masculinity in Gus, but he's still acting like this semi-jackass, like, I'm going to use the genies to give you this wish so that you'll fall in love with me, and you'll think that I'm great, and then it'll be really painful for you when I pass. I'm going to give you this great day, and then I'm going to... (laughs) massacre you by saying like oh by the way i've got cancer and that's the reason we're on this trip (laughs) like he's a bit of an (laughs) well and it's interesting too in that way because i think there are moments where an easier to like gus has opportunities for change and the one that i'm thinking of is when they're at the restaurant and he says that a life that's not lived for anything is not worth anything and she says that's a really mean thing for you to say to me yeah like my lungs don't work I can't walk up the stairs in the Anne Frank house without blacking out. I have physical limitations that don't allow me to live the kind of heroic life that you seem to assert is the only one of value. And Mm -hmm. that's mean. It really is. He's kind of thoughtless (laughs) in that way. Well, that's the thing. He says, I wasn't thinking about you. And she says, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, because he's always only thinking about himself, right? Yes. Well, he's a 17-year-old boy, Joe. (laughs) I know. But part of this is that if you're also going to treat your young adult characters like they are capable of adult thought and philosophical discussions on a very high intellect level, it's also frustrating then to see them acting like little children. But isn't he performing that intellectualism? Like, I think Hazel Grace is a deep thinker. I think Augustus performs depth right like everything about a stupid cigarette metaphor right oh my god the cigarette metaphor drives me insane (laughs) insane (laughs) i can't handle it but to me like i think that that's the point like i actually think you're supposed to have that reaction to gus but here's my problem then because if you look and i know we're not talking about fandom it's not a fandom podcast (laughs) (laughs) but if you look at the reason that people respond to this book they just love gus They love the romance, right? And it's unproblematized for young readers. Yes. I don't disagree with you there. They're getting tattoos of these quotes. Like, the (laughs) non-parent in me is kind of freaking out that, like, kids, you need to be more discriminatory. (laughs) Don't just fall for the bad boy. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with you at all. And I think one of the interesting parallels in the novel that we haven't talked about at all is uh, Gus's friend Isaac. Mm-hmm. And so Isaac, I can't remember what his type of cancer is specifically, but it has it's just resulted. eye cancer. Is that just a thing? Did you say eye cancer? I do believe it's a real thing, but I don't know. <laughs> you talk, I'll look it up. He's lost one eye to a previous surgery and he's about to lose his other eye. So he's about to go completely blind. It says it's eye neoplasms. Oh, okay. So it is. Okay. It's a benign tumor or malignant tumor in your eye. I was going to say he definitely had the malignant one. So he's about to lose his sight completely. And he's in this very passionate, very sort of typically teenage relationship 
with a girl named Monica. It's a nice contrast. It is a nice contrast. And she basically dumps him the day before the surgery because she can't handle the idea of his surgery. Because she's a huge <laughs> I mean, we barely meet her. Like, we, she's not a real person as far as the narrative is concerned. And she's treated that way. She exists to be egged. She exists to be egged, literally. But what I like about that is, to me, it functions somewhat like the contrasting relationship of like Rosalind and Romeo in Romeo and Juliet as this Uh, like, this is what we're supposed to think these two aren't. Gus and Hazel think that they are absolutely nothing like Monica and Isaac, but what ultimately comes of... Always becomes okay. Always becomes okay. And we still all inflict pain upon each other, right? I mean, this idea that Hazel won't inflict pain upon Gus if she just doesn't engage in the relationship because she's a grenade and she needs to limit the casualties or the idea that Gus can limit the pain that he causes by having these acts of heroism that will make people think differently about his life. We all just inflict pain on each other. It's sort of the human condition. And that's to me what that contrast does is like echo that there's not actually that much difference between Monica and Gus, Mm -hmm. except that Monica can't handle it. So she bails And Gus can't handle not having it, so he orchestrates this falling in love. Yeah. I mean, Hazel also has to have the opportunity to live her life, right? She has to have the opportunity to fall in love. Like, she is also making choices. Like, she is Mm -hmm. also making conscious choices. I mean, I should clarify. I don't mean to suggest that Hazel is ignorant or stupid for falling in love with someone who maybe is doing a bit more posing than I would have Mm. preferred. And I think you're right. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the love affair is good for her because it does force her to come to some realizations that I think she had been putting off or Mm -hmm. denying Mm -hmm. in her reality television watching (laughs) slumber, for lack of a better term. I mean, again, another YA trope that we've come across a lot with this project is this idea of avoiding life or waiting for your real life to start but never never pans out (laughs) so one thing before we move over into the film i had a couple of i don't know minor issues that prevented me from enjoying the book as much as i would have liked one of them was gus one of them was that i more so than any author thus far could feel the gender difference between the author and his character. Oh, interesting. There were a lot of times where I honestly felt like I could see John Green in Hazel as opposed to Hazel herself. Really? I don't have that experience Mm -hmm. at all. That's really interesting to me. I had it more often early on, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it was just me struggling to adapt to a character's voice. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've often had difficulty getting into a text initially until I can settle in and sort of figure out the rhythms. Well, and find your connection to it, right? Yeah. The thing that's going to make it meaningful to you. I think that's normal. That's really interesting, though, because I actually, I often feel like I can hear the adult voice, like the future Hazel that never will be Mm -hmm. coming in and reflecting in some moments. And that bothers me because there will never be that Hazel, right? Hazel's never going to be 35 and looking back on this moment. And so when those mm. those little moments sneak in, it bothers me. Maybe it's that then. Maybe it's the adult and not necessarily the man writing the girl. I mean, that's what I feel like it is. There's some interesting context for this. I don't know if you noticed, but the first words of the text before the novel starts... John Green is like, this is a work of fiction. Please treat it like a work of fiction. Did you notice that? There's a lot of stuff that he does that feels like, please don't come at me. Like yeah. he's, he writes, I think, from a very defensive position. Well, I have some context for, for that bit of it anyway. Okay, enlighten me. Sure. So two experiences John Green has talked about in interviews and in his video blogs went into the construction of Hazel as a character, but he was really anxious about people reading that character as someone's biography because it's not right it is a fictionalization but so there's a young woman named esther earl and esther earl was very big in the harry potter fandom and in the nerd fighter fandom and she was living with cancer and did die of it at 16 i guess was it the same kind of cancer do you know i don't honestly know if it was the same kind of cancer i would have to look it up okay but she used her make-a-wish to have the uh, slumber party hotel 
thing in Boston with her mom and her sisters and her best friends and members of the nerdfighter community and John Green. Like John Green went and like hung out with them and they all went and got pizza together and they ended up forming like a correspondence. Like they wrote back and forth and he was involved in some of her charitable things that she was doing at that point in her life. And so she started a charity, a cancer charity? She did. She did. Well, actually, no. Hang on. I'm going to look it up. Uh, so she was involved in this charity. The Nerdfighters, as a fandom, they do an incredible amount of charitable work. It's kind of crazy. And they have a foundation that's called the Foundation to Decrease World Suck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Points to them for that name. <laughs> They've been around since, two, I guess, 2007, I think the foundation was established. They do things like raise money to buy mosquito nets anti-malarial mosquito nets, you know, for Hmm. places that are having malaria outbreaks. And they raised a ton of money after the Haitian earthquake. They raise a phenomenal amount of money. I think one time I looked it up before I was teaching this and it was an absolutely shocking amount of money. But every year they have the project for awesome in December where they raise money for the foundation to decrease world suck. And yeah, so different charities they've been involved with UNICEF, you know, they've been involved with various UNHCR organizations. They now regularly raise one to two million dollars in this December campaign. So like it's it's a substantial amount of money. And Esther Earle was really involved in that. And they celebrate her birthday now as like Esther Day where they get together and they raise money and talk about the importance of supporting causes, not just that deal with cancer, but that support the sort of families and the other interests of kids with cancer. And Esther Earle actually has a book, her parents published it posthumously, called This Star Won't Go Out, which is sort of a collection of her short stories and diary entries and musings. It's a cute book and all the money raised from that book goes to this charitable organization. I think that John Green was really worried that people were going to read the book as a biography of Esther Earle instead of the story of Hazel Grace herself. And he really, he's talked about being very concerned about people thinking he was trying to claim or tell Esther's story. But he's also very open about the impact that his correspondence and friendship with Esther had on his life. The other thing is that before John Green was a novelist, he was training to be a pastor Mm. and he worked as a hospital chaplain in a children's cancer ward. So it's also those kinds of stories, right? He was at, I guess, Children's Hospital in Ohio. He went to the divinity school at the University of Chicago, I think. And sorry, not pastor, Episcopal priest, but he ended up not pursuing that obviously. But he had spent a lot of time with these children suffering from life-threatening illnesses, dying of cancer. And so I think that that's really wrapped up in his desire to portray all of these kids as rounded people, but also perhaps as more mature and more capable than maybe they are seen by a medical industry and a, and you know family units. We see Hazel really being infantilized often in those meetings with her doctors, right? Yeah. And I think Green is really trying to push back against that representation and perhaps it would be fair to say that he goes a little bit too far <laughs> when that adult voice creeps in. It's interesting though that you bring up this other piece, which is this idea that he wanted to show the cancer kids as a bit more fully rounded. So one of the other things that struck me, and I had difficulty putting it into words until I started to look around a little bit online. So I found a website called Disability in Kid Lit. Mm. And this individual, S.L. Huang, has done a review of The Fault in Our Stars. And this individual is a two-time cancer survivor, the first time at age 12 and the second time in their 20s. And it would be unfair to say that the review does not sound a little biased. They talk about going into the book expecting to not like it and then finding Mm. that to be the case. But Mm. they do raise a good couple of points. One of the issues that they say is that all of the characters are very similar. So they all seem to have the same kind of speaking voice. Or they all seem to... Like, there's not a lot of distinction in terms of the way the characters speak. And the other big thing that Huang raises is this idea that they say that they are more than the sum of their cancer or that the cancer does not make (laughs) them special. And yet, of course, if you read the book, the opposite is very much true. Hazel Grace seems to have no hobbies apart from watching reality television. (laughs) She talks about going to class, but apart from her diction, she doesn't seem to have much interest in other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So this person says... The book is 
in the one way that it's saying it's doing one thing and then giving it to you in a different form that's more palatable, which is the romance, which I would argue it's quite successful at, the depiction of cancer and cancer kids is actually quite stilted and quite limiting. Mm. And I, I did find that that was a bit of a frustration. It's interesting because one of the things that I find compelling about the book, and as we transition into talking about the movie, one of the few things that I missed in the adaptation, which I think is ultimately very well done, is the character of Carolyn Mather, Mm, who we never meet as a real person. But I think Carolyn is a really important character to keep in mind when we think about what's going on in the text. And I I wonder about a different version of the novel where Green would have been perhaps brave enough to allow her to be a a fully realized living character in the text. So Carolyn Mather is Augustus's ex-girlfriend, and she died of a brain tumor. So we have a lot rooted in Gus's masculine, his version of masculinity that demands to rescue mm-hmm. and to care for, but in a sort of self-sacrificing way. I mean, Hazel is the second dying girl he has fallen in love with in his 17 years. Yes, which is actually also another criticism of this, which is, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, in the review, which is that they all find love and everything that they're looking for among other cancer people, as in they're not mm-hmm. exposed to other people. Well, and they don't have to have those difficult conversations. Yeah. But what's interesting about Carolyn's character is that she bucks all of the stereotypes that are both critiqued and represented in this novel in that she does not die a beautiful death her brain tumor makes her mean yeah it it destroys her ability to self-censor it makes her say cruel and horrible things over and over and over again because she doesn't know that she's already said them and she laughs at Gus's, Gus's amputation but like over and over and over again because she doesn't remember that she's already laughed at it in that interaction. I can't imagine. No, I can't imagine. And on the one hand, that is really important to our understanding of what Gus has been through, I think. But if we had been able to see Caroline as a real character, like if we didn't meet her after her death, I think Green could have put to rest some of those. Because that, I mean, there is something... Brave, and I don't mean that in the edgelord sort of way, but about (laughs) realizing the full cost of cancer and that not everybody who has a debilitating illness is a brave soldier through it. And I think sometimes he does a good job of that as Augustus disintegrates before our eyes. I think there is some moments of real honesty Mm -hmm. um, in those depictions. But yeah, I think Carolyn Mather is an opportunity untaken to explore that further. Yeah, because I think... Without sounding horribly insensitive, I would argue that Gus's slow creep towards death is presented as beautiful suffering. Oh, I think you're right. Like this beautiful boy, because he is repeatedly referred to as a beautiful, handsome boy, Mm -hmm. all-star athlete. The way that he falls apart in his end, it's meant to humanize him, right? It's to show Mm -hmm. that he is a, a real human being. He suffers beautifully on his way to death but at the Mm -hmm. same time the lesson that you're meant to take away from it or maybe it's just the lesson that hazel takes away from it as our first person narrator Mm -hmm. is isn't it sad what he once was and what he has become as opposed to oh my god look at how horrible dying truly is yeah i mean i think the scene at the gas station attempts to address the grotesqueness of that Mm -hmm. if you've not read the book there's a scene where he tries to drive himself to a gas station and his nutrition tube that goes into his stomach is infected and he calls hazel for help and he's basically i mean the infection is such that he is almost not copus mentis by the time she calls an ambulance for him Mm -hmm. and he's moaning that he hates himself and that he wants to die and there's like to me that scene is what i'm talking about when i talk about sort of these glimpses of honesty because that scene is gross right like he's throwing up into his own lap so i think that critique is fair in that green does not sustain those moments and what i think is a deep irony in the text intentional or not we will never know but what hazel hates about van houten we find out that part of why van houten is such a bitter horrible man is that he's never really come to terms with his own daughter's death from a childhood cancer Mm -hmm. and one of the things that van houten says is she suffered but she suffered beautifully and hazel is disgusted by that when he says it but then she goes on to remake gus's death in that same vein And I'm not sure, I mean, I don't think it's fully articulated that that irony is intentional and I don't want to give Green credit he's not due. Fair. But it is, (laughs) but the tension does exist in the text. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's transition into the film and talk about what sure. works and doesn't. So here's the trailer for The Fault in Our Stars from 2016. This is the truth. Hey, make some friends. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> I'm Augustus Waters. I've been in remission for about a year and a half. Maybe you'd like to share some of your fears with the group. My fears? Oblivion. What's your name? Hazel. What's your full name? Hazel Grace Lancaster. Why are you staring at me? Because you're beautiful. So, what's your story? I was diagnosed when I was 13. No, no. Your real story. I am quite unextraordinary. I reject that out of hand. You know, Gus talks about you all the time. We're just friends. I hope you realize you're trying to keep your distance from me in no way lessens my affection for you. Gus, I'm a grenade. One day I'm gonna blow up and I'm gonna obliterate everything in my wake. And I don't wanna hurt you. You don't get to choose if you get hurt in this world, but you do have a say in who hurts you. I am in love with you, Hazel Grace. And I know that love is just a shout into the void and that oblivion is inevitable. And I am in love with you. All your efforts to keep me from you are gonna fail. All right, so the film version of our tale casts teen starlet Shailene Woodley, who I'm sure you... Who apparently... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, she apparently campaigned really hard for this role. I can imagine. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. not only because it was destined to be a big hit, so it's good to have that on your side, but also because this is a pretty meaty role for a young actress, right? Especially for a big selling YA property, there's a lot of emotional weight and depth to the role. Mm -hmm. But sorry, go on. Oh, no, I was actually going to ask you if you must have known her from, what is it, Secret Life of an American (laughs) Teenager? How did you know I watched that show? (sighs) Because... Because I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I knew her from Secret Life of the American Teenager, which is such a great show. Everybody gets pregnant. Literally everyone. Okay, so that, that is not a selling feature. No, that doesn't make me want to watch it at all. <laughs> it's so aggressively, like, American in its outlook on sex. Like, it's amazing. Anyway, sorry. 16 and Come pregnant on. times five seasons. <laughs> All right, and then Gus is played by Ansel Elgert, who I think at this point, he was on the rise, but I think this cemented him as teen heartthrob. This was a big role for him, for sure. I think it's just so funny how so many of these YA films end up becoming all about the guy. Like, hi, society, can we take a step back? (laughs) Just reflect on this a little bit. Like, to all the boys I've loved before, Dumplin', this. Yep. The women are doing the heavy lifting, and the boys walk out of it like... (laughs) Hey, look at me. I'm a hot beefcake. And spoiler alert for the book that we're doing next. (laughs) It's exactly the same problem. Dumplin's amazing, too, because that guy has like four scenes and he ends up being the breakout star somehow. And he ain't that hot, America. Come on. No, he's really not. Okay. Uh, Isaac is played by Nat Wolf. And then the characters we've actually talked very little about are the adults. Um, so we have avoiding Laura Dern as Hazel's mom, Sam Trammell from True Blood as her father, and Willem Dafoe as Peter Van Houten. And I think also worth mentioning Mike Birbiglia as Patrick, the terrible support group leader. Must we? <laughs> I was confused at how they aged him up so much for the film. Yeah, I think it's because Mike Birbiglia wanted to be in it, and they felt like that was a good role for him. But yeah, you're right. And he's he's infinitely more pathetic as a result in the film than he is in the book. Really? And he's bad enough in the book. I think I so. I think he's way more pathetic in the book. He has a guitar in the film, Joe. A guitar. This is true, but we don't get to hear him talk about ball cancer. <laughs> That's true. Which was one of the few saving graces that I liked about his character in the book. That he had ball cancer? The fact that he mentions it. Oh, okay. Because it just seems something so inappropriate for the only adult in a room to talk about (laughs) with a room of teenagers. It's pretty great. Don't talk about your ball cancer, adults. (laughs) Not to kids. (laughs) Okay, so what works for you in the film? It's interesting. I was telling you before we started recording that this is the first media thing I've watched since having my son that is a very different experience for me. This one punched you in the mom feels, didn't it? (laughs) I cried so much that my husband, Devin, was like, I think, slightly afraid to leave me alone with the movie last night when he had to go to bed. Like, I was, 
I was absolutely gutted by this film. And it's interesting because I've always felt it was a very effective adaptation. Yes. <laughs> and I teach it in my adaptation class and we talk about it as a transposition adaptation and a very effective one and blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry, what is a transposition adaptation? Transposition adaptation is where the goal of the book and the goal of the film are the same. Oh, interesting. Okay. So ultimately they're telling the same story and they're doing it using basically the same beats. And so we used it as a good example of that because there's like dialogue that comes straight out of both. I mean, my favorite example of that is the High Fidelity uh, yeah. film adaptation where basically and not it's just like because you freaking love monologues. John Cusack. <laughs> we haven't had a chance to even see a John Cusack movie yet. Make more YA, John Cusack. <laughs> So I've always felt that the adaptation was effective. But this time when I read the book, for me, all of a sudden, the mum and dad are the most important characters (laughs) in the book. (laughs) And I've always appreciated the struggle of the parents being depicted in this book. Like I've always felt that that's a choice that Green makes, that he doesn't have to make within the conventions of the genre, and I'm grateful for it. And I was grateful for it before it was apparent. Mm But it's absolutely gutting now. But what I was saying to Joe before we started recording is, the book has always made me cry. I cry every time Augustus Waters dies. I think I'm always secretly hoping he's not gonna. It's like when I read Anne of Green Gables, and I'm always like a little surprised that Matthew has to die again. Like, And I always cry. I never cry at the film. And I don't, I just don't, visual representations don't get me the way books do. But this time I was literally curled up in a ball on the couch. <laughs> over the most ridiculous things and that's where I'm getting to the idea of adaptation here I'm coming to it is I was really impressed by Laura Dern's performance for sure but Sam Trammell who barely has any scenes as this emotional dad who doesn't really always know what to say or what to do but is sort of navigating these waters with his teenage daughter like there's this scene when they go to Amsterdam they come home And her dad is waiting for them at the bottom of the escalator as they arrive at the airport. He's got this really cute sign that says, my beautiful family, and then in brackets underneath, and Gus, (laughs) which always makes me laugh in the book. It's very funny. But there's this very brief, like, it's maybe a half a second shot of him seeing Hazel for the first time and choking up and then recovering before he greets them that absolutely destroyed me. (laughs) And I think that's where the film adaptation is really, really good, is that it's they've chosen very excellent actors who can portray the subtleties of this weird emotional space where you are grieving a person who is still alive. Mm-hmm. And sort of for the dad constantly in this state of like, I'm going to work. Will I see you when I get home? I don't know, you know? And all of the actors do, I think, a tremendous job, like across the board. They really, really do. And I'm I'm going to echo your sentiments for Laura Dern because honestly, I honestly just feel like we as a society do not appreciate certain actresses enough. Yeah, I and agree. I feel like Laura Dern is actually now having a bit of a renaissance after she had such a great year with Big Little Lies and Star Wars and all these things. And people are now suddenly like, oh, Laura Dern, she's not just Jurassic Park. And you're like, <laughs> no, she's never just been Jurassic Park. <laughs> But there's just, there's something so emotionally complex about the nuances that she can capture with a facial expression. Mm -hmm. Like when Hazel is going to the church to deliver Gus's eulogy, and Shailene Woodley is, she's fantastic throughout the entire movie as well. Like she's, don't get me wrong, she's great. She does the like petulant teenager like, mom, I've just got to go. And they're like, you've got to eat, you've got to look after yourself. And she delivers that horrible line. I'm going to die and you're not going to be a mother anymore. The look of Mm. anguish on Laura Dern's face destroyed me on this rewatch. I just immediately started crying. (laughs) Like it was instantaneous reaction. I felt so bad for her. It's so funny that you say that films don't have that kind of effect on you traditionally, because for me, the opposite is true. I think I've cried maybe once or twice reading a book, but films... TV commercials, (laughs) like the right music cue, the right actor, the right edit, and I'm a hot mess. I should admit that I well up at most things. Like I will well up at like a Tim Hortons ad shot correctly, for sure. But like full scale bawling (laughs) is reserved for books. Devin will often walk into a room and I'll be just sitting in a chair crying and he'll be like, did something sad happen to the people in your book? Right. <laughs> because usually that's what has happened. Which is funny because now that I'm thinking about it, 
I can think of two very vivid reactions that I've had. And one was a book about a man's dog dying. Mm. And one was a man about his partner dying. And then the other mm. one was a Nils Ghost by Michael Ondaatje. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> Un- underrated classic, by the way. Definitely. Agreed. Agreed. Everybody always wants to talk about the English patient. Ugh, it's honestly my least favorite Ondaatje. So, Fault in Our Stars. <laughs> oh, right. It's not a canlit podcast? Cool. Okay. Fair. I mean, I'm willing to go there. If people want to pay, I've got a Patreon account ready to go. If people want to give us a little extra coin, we will turn this into a CanCon hotline <laughs> in a hot second. Love it. Yeah, I, I'm really, I think the parents are a particular strength of both book and film, but I think they come across really well in the film. Yeah, this strikes me as another text where the people that they've cast in these roles can help to smooth out some of the more mm. tricky parts, or at least yeah. that was my experience. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think I just wish we got more of the parents, like more of the backstory in the film so that we could see, you know, when we find out that Hazel's mom is taking courses towards a master's in social work, in the book that is highly telegraphed, right? She's always reading something in the car or she's you know like there we have all these moments where we see her doing something we don't think anything of it at the Mm -hmm. time but like you see her working on something and hazel just assumes it's cancer paperwork because there's just always cancer paperwork but in the film it's just completely like i'm doing a master's in social work and you're like oh i wish i had seen you holding a book ever (laughs) at any point in the film but that's just i mean to me that's not really a critique of the film that's like the strength of the and actress who are playing the parents I just wanted more of them right one of my favorite scenes with the dad is after Augustus dies and he's trying to comfort Hazel and he says what a privilege it was to love him because Hazel has this idea that she's this grenade and that loving her is just like accepting that you're going to be sad one day Mm -hmm. and her parents are trying to get her to see that her life is more than her illness and it's a beautiful moment where he says to her, it's kind of gives you kind of a sense of how we feel about you, right? Like maybe you can understand now what we feel that I found really humanizing and lovely. I just, I was really taken this time by the parents. Like I have not had this experience since becoming a mom with the exception of, I can't watch Call the Midwife anymore. (laughs) Because once you've had a C-section, watching a 1950s C-section is like not something you need in your life. See, and you said you don't like horror movies. (laughs) It's so true. It's written by sociopaths, that show. British sociopaths at their best. (laughs) You are our film expert, Joe. We've agreed that it's an effective adaptation, but you normally notice things about the visual world of the film that I don't. Did you have any of those kinds of insights this time? Interesting that you brought this up because I was really racking my brain trying to think about something to say in this regard. And I really feel like this is a bit of an innocuous direction. It's not overly fanciful. There aren't a lot of really compelling visual tricks Like, it feels as though Josh Boone made almost an executive decision to say, I've cast the right people in this, and I know that the material works, like it's going to sell itself. And Mm -hmm. he, it almost feels like he just lets the camera go, Mm -hmm. which surprised me. But I mean, admittedly, unless we're talking about some of these more fantastical pieces, like A Discovery of Witches, or some of the texts that we're going to be talking about when we get to more dystopian YA, like... Warm Bodies was probably the closest that we've gotten to it, where you're almost emboldened to embellish some of the visual tricks because you've got battle sequences, you've got dystopian worlds to build. Like When we're this grounded in realist YA, it's characters front and center in this text, I Mm -hmm. think, above Mm -hmm. all else. Absolutely. It would have been almost a disservice to the material to focus too much on fancy things. I mean, Mm -hmm. fancy. It's... (laughs) like tools of the trade. But in this case, I think he made the right call in hanging back and not making the director or the author known. So I was teaching this particular fandom when the film came out. And so I was at the time really closely sort of monitoring what they were up to. What timing? It was good timing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very wise. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember watching the discussion forums and Tumblr while they were waiting for the poster to come out. And there was a huge, just thrilled, happy groundswell when the poster launched. And if you're not familiar with the poster, it's got Angle, Ang- 
and what the hell is his Ansel. name? Ansel Elgort and Shailene Woodley, and they're sort of they're lying on their backs facing each other, and it's just like a close up of their faces, and it says like the fault in our stars, and they're dressed in sort of earthy tones, and they their hair is the same color. There's something very um, symmetrical and pleasing about it. Yeah, it's almost matchy matchy. It is, but one of the things that I would never have thought of, and it comes back to our conversation about representation and illness and whether it's effective or not, was the absolute delight and joy within the sort of subcommunity of neurofighters who live with chronic illnesses of various sorts. Mm-hmm. That even in the film poster, she has her cannula. Is that how you say that? She calls them her nubbins, but her her oxygen tube yes. is present in this what is a stereotypically romantic shot. Right. You can see her oxygen tubing, and this was, I think, pretty huge for a lot of people to see. And the sex scene as well, which mm-hmm. is fairly modestly shot and addressed but does still show she's taking her shirt off and it gets tangled up in all the tubing and he's got anxiety about his amputation and this idea that people who are living with disability or living with chronic illness or living with cancer that they have the opportunity to experience sexuality right and you know there's a moment where she tries to take out her she calls them her nubbins she tries to take them out and then she realizes that she can't yeah, breathe. Like, I got so to put them back in. You got to put them back in. And so this idea that those things are not cut out or sort of photoshopped out of their romance, which obviously, I mean, necessary within the context of the film, but I think a lot of people were expecting that the advertising wouldn't include that kind of really strong visual representation. And I remember reading that people were really pleased by that representation. Yeah, it's interesting too, because the more that you discover about the film world, things like trailers and posters do not always require the consent of the filmmakers and the actors. So oh, interesting. there's every possibility that all of that could have actually been eliminated in some way or tweaked to make it more presentable to a wider audience in the hopes of garnering better returns. While you were talking about that, I swear I was listening, but (laughs) I did want to highlight actually one particularly effective sequence just to give Mr. Boone his extra boon. (laughs) Did you know before you'd say this that Stephen Chbosky was in talks to direct this? Uh, I think I had read that back when we were investigating Perks of Being a Wallflower. Call back to episode one. He turned it down because he felt it was too similar to Perks. I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah which I would say is probably a good call for him. Although he did go on to make Wonder, which is kind of its own. Very similar also. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that eventually, I'm sure. Mm. The sequence I did want to highlight as being really effective, it kind of worked for me in the book, but I think it actually has a bit more impact in the film, is her hike up the Anne Frank house. Yes. Agreed. And it's not quite a montage, but it is scored to appropriately compelling music that makes it feel like she's climbing a mountain. It really helps you to understand what she's actually trying to overcome in this tiny little Amsterdam house that doesn't have an elevator. And I can mm-hmm. I can vouch for that. Having been to Amsterdam, those places have freaking narrow, very steep staircases. So for her mm-hmm. to make that ascent in her condition... And it's that nice moment of perseverance, right? And the fact that it follows right after that disastrous meeting with Peter Van Houten, where he's effectively demolished her and he's called her, what is it, a mutation? That a stunt, uh, side effect. A side effect. Mm-hmm. Like that's the most belittling, horrible thing that someone could say to her and someone that she thought was going to be an important part in these last days of her life. So to then turn that around and really dig deep. You know, it, is it cliche? Sure. Does it work? Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. It's true. It really does. And it's a a moment that allows Augustus to step back also. Like he can't hero through that scene for her. It is her journey and only her journey. I think that makes it really important to the depiction of both of them in the film. Mm -hmm. As for kissing in the Anne Frank house. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, be a little more respectful, kids. (laughs) People have written a lot about that. For sure, about the depiction in the book and in the film. I've heard of that, which I thought was interesting. I mean, it's interesting that the pieces of these texts that people become focused on. And I gathered that part of the reason that people do that with particular texts, with particular scenes, is because they are so enraptured by them, right? Like, 
if you didn't care about these characters, you wouldn't care. But also then, if you didn't care about Anne Frank, you wouldn't care. All right, Brenna, do you have a bingo for A Fault in... No, The Fault in My Stars? <laughs> a the Fault in, in Our, our stars? stars? The Fault in Our Stars? <laughs> Faulty Starsy, do you have a YA bingo? <laughs> bingo! Not a good bingo. Uh, yeah, I do. It's author cameo. Did you catch the author cameo, Joe? I did not, I'm sad to say. I have to say, I accidentally watched the extended version because apparently I needed to cry more. More. <laughs> There's a scene that's in only the extended version when they're in the airport leaving for Amsterdam, and it's sort of a rewrite of the scene in the mall where the little girl tries on her oxygen tubing. Mm-hmm. And John Green plays the dad of the little girl in that scene. Oh, I see. Yeah, he's not very good. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, writers are not always actors. <laughs> Shocking. Do you have a YA bingo? I do. You know, I was looking over our list, and I think the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is kind mm. of okay, but maybe a bit of a stretch. I don't want to diminish Hazel, but I do feel like between her and Gus, they kind of hit a lot of points. Definitely a common criticism of the way John Green writes female characters. And he's trying to get away from it in this book. Uh, it's really bad in Looking for Alaska. Really, really bad. Mm. Yes. Still excited to see what happens with that TV adaptation. Oh, yeah. No, I'm still going to watch the heck out of it. <laughs> and then also kind of a rich people problems. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because the book is so careful to talk about the financial problems that come with cancer care. We really don't see that in the movie, like, at all. Yeah. So those are mine. Cool. So not too bad. Not too bad. Um, Joe? Yes. The baby's up. Okay. So <laughs> can we do a quick wrap up or yeah, do we have time? I'm just watch- no, I am, I'm just watching on the video monitor and we got probably, we could probably a minute or two to wrap it up. Let's do it. I can't remember what we're talking about next. So why don't you take that? Sure. Okay. So next week we are going to be dipping into a little more traditional YA romance territory with The Kissing Booth. Yay! A little bit of a Netflix film there for you all. Yeah, and I've seen the film already. It's very cute. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so if you want to get a hold of us, we'll encourage you to use the hashtag HKHSPod, and you can reach us by email if you want to say something a little bit longer. That's at HKHSPod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And I'm available at B Stone My Remote. That's the letter B. So uh, yeah, this was a great chat. It's a book with a lot to talk about. Obviously film too. I think we could have kept going, but um, my baby is awake. So until next time, I'll see you on the page. (laughs) And I'll see you on the screen. (laughs) 